trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm not here today to tell you what to think. I just want to make that clear from the start. But I am here today to encourage you to rebel against the narrative that's being force-fed to us via most, uh, you know, mass media outlets. You know, there's just this incredible effort right now to protect you from information that, uh, uh, you know, could be misinformation, maybe dangerous and misleading. And and, and by dangerous and misleading, here's, here's what that really means. If you see the truth or if you recognize the truth, you might lose faith in some of the people who are claiming the prerogative to run your life and tell you what to do. In other words, you may actually uh, realize, hey, all these politicians, all these members of the ruling class, all of these uh, permanent bureaucrats, they really don't have my best interest in mind. And, well, frankly, I could withdraw my consent if I want to. That's what... uh, Power seekers and opportunists really fear. So I'm here to encourage you to a question what they tell you. Question what their, uh, what their hallowed you know, media outlets are telling you. Question what their experts are saying to you. And own your own worldview. And that doesn't mean that you have to agree with me, because you don't. But my job is to hopefully get you thinking a little more deeply about the issues and the things that are going on around us, preferably at a level where we're evaluating the principles that are at stake more so than the personalities or the political ramifications. Those tend to be distractions. And boys, there are a lot of distracting going on right now. So I wanted to start out today talking about this this concept of, well, you know, some businesses are too big to fail. I think back to, uh, what was it, the TARP bailouts in uh, 2007, 2008. And, uh, you know, that was frustrating at the time. And, and it should have been a warning sign for anybody who was paying attention. Yet that only passed because the Republicans were pushing it. I mean, well, President Bush was the one who, int- who originally introduced the idea of, well, we've got to bail these businesses out. And, of course, Obama took the ball and ran with it. What does it mean, though, when a business is too big to fail? Why, that's just what that means is it's too embedded with government or it's too uh, partnered up with government for government not to scratch its back, you know, in return for the favors that uh, that particular industry or business is providing to those in power. And with the uh, failure of Silicon Valley, Valley Bank, what was that earlier this year, back in March? Now you have the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, stepping up, and they're actually putting out a proposal saying, you know, it used to be, well, this, uh, you know, this bank has FDIC insured deposits up to $100,000, $150,000. I think it's now $250,000 is <clears throat> pretty much the norm. But the FDIC is saying, well, you know, we ought to be able to offer unlimited guarantees. And the danger there is that If the bankers are making bad decisions, in other words, they're making risky loans or they're otherwise using bad business practices and they're in danger of failing, they ought to be allowed to fail. Well, Brian, it's people's lives and jobs. Yes, I understand. But it's also the natural consequence of people's lives and jobs 
being at risk because there was bad behavior or at least risky behavior. So when, when the FDIC steps up and says, well, we'd be willing to offer unlimited, you know, guarantees of people's deposits, that's not going to promote greater financial stability. They, they haven't learned that lesson. Now, from that, I want to pivot to uh, a commentary from Thomas Knapp. Thomas L. Knapp uh, put this one out yesterday uh, for the William Lloyd Garrison Center. Fantastic article, and, and he's right on, on the money here. It's titled, The Fix for Failure. Banks should sell their services, not gamble with your money. And Thomas has a real knack for getting right to the heart of the matter. He says the collapses of three large U.S. banks, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank, so far this year, has certainly, taught the, has certainly caught the attention of the Federal Reserve and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. On June 29th, The Fed chair said at a conference, without going into detail, that the failure suggests a need to strengthen our supervision and regulation of institutions of the size of SVB. Now, Thomas says, in reality, supervision and regulation, including the FDIC's guarantee to make depositors whole should a bank fail, have proven themselves part of, not a solution to, the problem. As regulators jigger with the rules and break those rules, as the FDIC did, in paying out more than the insured limits to Silicon Valley Bank's depositors, creative bankers work the angles in what amounts to an outrageously large casino operation. And he says the problem is something called fractional reserve banking. This is a great explanation, and it's something everybody needs to understand. Thomas L. Knapp writes, when you deposit, say, $100 in a bank, the understanding is that you can withdraw the full $100 at any time. But your bank doesn't stick the $100 in a vault so that it can hand it back to you on demand. Under the Fed's capital requirement rules, somewhere between 90 and 93% of that money, depending on the bank's size, gets loaned out, invested in bonds, etc., so that the bank makes money from your money. Now, suppose some of those investments go underwater, borrowers default, bond interest rates fall, or maybe the investments just aren't very liquid. They can be turned into ready cash, but not quickly. Now, suppose you show up at the bank to collect your $100, and all the bank's other customers are there too, queuing up to close out their accounts. Maybe you all heard the bank wasn't doing well. Well, there are a thousand of you standing in line with an average balance of $100 to make a nice, even $100,000 being withdrawn. This is called a bank run. But the bank only has $10,000 on hand and can't readily lay hands on the other $90,000 it owes all of you. At some point, he says, the bank closes its doors and goes bankrupt or sells itself to an institution with deeper pockets for a fraction of its assets' prospective value. The bank has failed. Sure, the FDIC will give you your $100 back, taking it out of insurance premiums paid by all banks, which is to say, by all banks' customers. But what if instead of three banks, it's 300 banks or even 3,000 banks? Things could get bad very quickly. Widespread panic, at least, and maybe even full-on economic collapse. Thomas L. Knapp writes, instead of capital requirement rules and insurance schemes to make fractional reserve banking work, we need banks that keep 100% of their deposits on hand instead of loaning or investing those deposits, taking their profits and fees for processing checks and debit card transactions. 
Six states already provide for the chartering of 100% reserve banks. But the Fed is resistant to the idea, and no wonder. In this casino operation, they're ultimately the house, which always wins. The banks are the gamblers, and they're gambling with your money. That's one of the clearest, most concise descriptions of fractional reserve banking that I've seen. And, and believe me, when, when you tell people, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Federal Reserve, that will, in most people's minds, put you at least on the, well, you're probably a conspiracy theorist kind of list. If not, uh, well, you sound like one of those dangerous government extremists, possible domestic terrorists. Only a domestic terrorist would doubt these wonderful institutions like the Federal Reserve. But so few people actually understand the history of what the Federal Reserve is or how it was sold to the American public. Or for that matter, who actually came up with the idea? Who actually wrote the, the legislation that was then you know, passed by Congress in 1913 calling this creature into existence? Now, if you're a person who's not afraid to pick up a good thick book and read, G. Ed Griffin's The Creature from Jekyll Island is one of the best sources for understanding what the Federal Reserve is and how it came into existence. You'll also come away with a pretty decent understanding of what money is, or at least what money should be, compared to what we are forced to use today under, you know, the uh, legal tender laws. You will use these Federal Reserve notes, which, which, to be truthful, only have value because we believe they have value. Most of our money, anyway, exists in the form of electrons or, you know, a number on a, on a ledger somewhere. It's very rare to even see people handing cash back and forth these days. But even those pieces of paper that look so impressive when somebody flashes a big wad of them, yo, check out my money. That's not really money. It's paper that represents value and it only has value as long as we believe in it. I'm sorry, have have I waxed a little too radical? Do 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 you hear your pulse pounding in your ears as you're thinking, hey, this is dangerous stuff. All I'm suggesting is that once upon a time, we understood what real money was or is. I'm not so sure that uh, that even a fraction of the American public, like I I would say it's got to be the low single digits of people who can actually tell you what is money or what what is real money. Or for that matter, why did the the founders specify that gold and silver, you know, were the the better way to, to coin money? I know, I've raised more questions than I've answered, but that's kind of what I do. Got a link to Thomas L. Knapp's article in my show notes. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the sponsors who make this program possible, including ClimbingUpward.com, TMCPNation.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Go to my website, TheBrianHydeShow.com. You can click on any of those links. They'll take you into a much deeper uh, understanding of who these clients are, who these uh, these sponsors are, and uh, you can uh, choose whether or not you'd like to do business with them. I'll say this, they all have something good to offer. So at the very least, maybe take a look and send them a thank you note. Tell them, hey, thanks for sponsoring the show. 
let's take a moment to talk about understanding the Constitution. Now, I know some people's eyes glaze over, oh boy, here we go, Constitution, you know, uh, we're on a big constitutional jag here. But when you understand that the Constitution is the contract, or compact would be the more appropriate word, as it was an agreement between multiple parties, being the states, it's what called the federal government into existence. Do you understand what that means? The states, representing the people of those states, called the federal government into existence in the Constitution, defined its form, defined its function, but most importantly, defined the upper limits of its power. Oh yeah, it has limits. I know, it doesn't behave like so today, but, but at one time it did. So it's important that we understand what the Constitution is, what it says, what it's supposed to do, because as we have seen, and I think I feel very safe saying this historically, the federal government has not been very good at regulating itself or abiding by its limits on its power. It can always find a loophole. It can always find an excuse or some convenient crisis. Well, you know, but we had to do this. So ultimately, it's on us to understand where and how the Constitution limits that government's power. And it's not rocket science. You don't have to have a law degree to understand this. You don't have to sit on the Supreme Court to understand it. I'm very grateful to Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center for his recent essay, Three Essentials to Understand the Constitution. He says, textualism is a prominent framework for interpreting the Constitution, and particularly in conservative circles. Adherents of this school generally believe you can understand the Constitution simply by reading the words in the document and determining the plain meaning of the text. Now, this differs from the intent of the framers, or the original meaning is understood by ratifiers. While textualism provides a good starting point, he says, it does have some limitations. For instance, reading the text alone can lead you astray if you don't have some knowledge of the historical and legal framework within which the Constitution was drafted and then ratified. So here are three primary things you need to understand to have a good foundation for grasping the original meaning of the Constitution. Number one is the changing meaning of words. Words mean things and the meaning of words change over time. So words can have different definitions in a legal context than they do in common use. And that's why it's crucial to understand the meaning of words and phrases at the time the Constitution was drafted and ratified. James Madison actually made this point in a letter to Henry Lee. Quote, I entirely concur in the propriety of resorting to the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation. In that sense alone, it is the legitimate Constitution. And if that be not the guide in expounding it, there can be no security for a consistent and stable more than, a, more than for a faithful exercise of its powers. If the meaning of the text be sought in the changeable meaning of the words composing it, it is evident that the shape and attributes of the government must partake of the changes to which the words and phrases of all living languages are constantly subject. What a metamorphosis would be produced in the code of law if all its ancient phraseology were to be taken in its modern sense. End quote. That's a quote that's actually worth going back over a couple times to make sure you understand it. Now, Mike Meharry says academic textualists concede this point, and they generally try to determine the plain meaning of the Constitution based on the vocabulary of the day. But Madison reveals a big problem that average people will run into if they try to understand the Constitution based simply on what it says. A good example of this problem is the change in the meaning of the word commerce over time. It had a much narrower meaning in the 1700s than it has today. 
And if you read the Commerce Clause using the modern meaning of the word, it will allow the federal government to wield much more power than intended. So in the founding era, commerce almost always had an economic meaning and was associated almost exclusively with activities engaged in by merchants. As Rob Nettleson noted in his paper, the legal meaning of the commerce in the Commerce Clause, this included buying and selling products made by others and sometimes land, associated finance and financial instruments, navigation and other carriage and intercourse across jurisdictional lines. Today, commerce generally means economic activity. Now, the Commerce Clause was never meant to give the federal government power to regulate manufacturing, agriculture, labor laws, workplace safety, or the host of other activities now micromanaged by the feds under the modern definition of the word. This is just one example of how the changing meaning of a word can alter our understanding of the Constitution. Referring to founding-era dictionaries and other period sources can help avoid this pitfall. Very sound advice, by the way. Read books from the period in which the Constitution was written. And you'll have a much better understanding. Secondly, he talks about historical context. Political systems evolve from ideas. So in order to fully grasp the system, you need the historical context that birthed the ideas and their evolution through time. So to properly understand the Constitution, it's important to know the history that led to its drafting and ratification. Now, the United States were born out of the American Revolution, but it wasn't so much about the war as John Adams explained the real revolution was a revolution in thought. Quote, what do we mean by the revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was affected from 1760 to 1775. End quote. Now, Adams went on to say that a radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people, that was the real American Revolution. The most fundamental change was the shift from believing that government is sovereign, in other words, possessing supreme or ultimate power, to believing sovereignty was in the people. As James Wilson put it, the truth is that in our governments, the supreme, absolute, and uncontrollable power remains in the people. And as they began to recognize their own sovereignty, Americans started to question the traditional conception of political power. The colonists began to think of a constitution as something that exists above the government and to reject the idea that the government formed the constitution. Instead, they conceived of a constitution as something that binds government. That's a huge distinction. And this led to the realization that constitutions need to be written in order to make the limits on government power absolutely clear. Now, Mike Meharry says understanding this historical context will help you read the Constitution properly. When someone proposes an interpretation that runs counter to these founding-era ideas, the interpretation sounds like something out of today's British system, and he says, I can almost guarantee that's a bad take. Finally, he talks about the legal framework, saying the Constitution is a legal document rooted in 17th century contract law. To grasp some of the nuances rather, of the Constitution, it's important to have some knowledge of the legal framework of the day. Think of it this way. You can't work an algebra problem unless you understand the rules of algebra. Well, in the same sense, it's difficult to completely understand the Constitution without some knowledge of the legal rules of construction at that time. For example, by enumerating the powers of Congress, Article 1, Section 8, the drafters excluded any powers not on the list. Legal rules of construction dictate that when reading a legal document, the enumeration of certain powers logically exclude all other powers not listed. 
This is the legal maxim. Designato unius est exclusio alterius, meaning the designation of one is the exclusion of the other. And understanding this rule of construction clarifies the extent of the general welfare clause. And if you don't understand this legal maxim, you might think that Congress can do anything and everything to promote the general welfare. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a few moments. Uh, He actually has a great quote from Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 83 explaining why that's not the case. It's not a blank check that that the government was handed, you know, under that uh, to promote the general welfare. Well, that means we should be able to tell you how much water your toilet can use when it flushes and taking all the phosphates out of your laundry detergent and your car must get this much uh, in gas mileage or you can't have it. And the list goes on and on. We'll come back to Mike Meharry's article in just a few moments. Again, thanks for tuning in today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center. And and look, if you want to be one of those people who actually has working knowledge of the Constitution, if you think it's an important thing, the 10th Amendment Center is just chock full of great information. It's a marvelous resource for people who really want to know for themselves You know, what is the Constitution? How is it set up? And it's not because, well, they just got these really clever writers or they've got attorneys who can turn a phrase and they'll tell you what to think. What I love about uh, Mike Meharry and the other writers at 10th Amendment Center is they go to the source. They go to the founders. They go to their, their words and their understanding to determine what exactly did they mean when they put things together the way they, they did. So in this article that I'm sharing, Three Essentials to Understand the Constitution, Mike Meharry talks about the changing meaning of words. He also talks about the legal framework, and he talks about uh, the the um, historical context of the time. So let's continue on with the legal framework for a moment. Again, the idea that, uh, well, government should be able to do anything to promote the general welfare. That's not the case. And Alexander Hamilton actually explains why this is. In his uh, Federalist paper, number th- number 83, which, remember, this was an essay to sell the public and sell the states on why they should ratify this Constitution. And his argument's based on this rule of construction, that if they designate, well, these are the powers of Congress listed in Article 1, Section 8, it excludes anything that's not mentioned. Hamilton put it this way, quote, The specification of particulars, the 18 enumerated powers of Article 1, Section 8, evidently excludes all pretension to a general legislative authority because an affirmative grant of special powers would be absurd as well as useless if a general authority was intended, end quote. Now, Mike Meharry says this isn't to say that you need a law degree to understand the meaning of the Constitution, but it is important to understand the basic legal framework it was written within. So the conclusion is this. Textualism provides a good starting point for understanding the meaning of the Constitution, but all text needs context. We've all seen what can happen when you pull a sentence out of its broader context. It can completely change the meaning of what was said. In the same sense, ripping a clause of the Constitution out of its historical and legal context can lead to misunderstandings. And these misunderstandings generally mean the federal government exercises more power than it legitimately should. 
St. George Tucker wrote the first systematic commentary on the Constitution, and he offers a good rule of thumb for reading the Constitution that's rooted in this legal and historical context. Quote, The powers delegated to the federal government are, in all cases, to receive the most strict construction that the instrument will bear, where the rights of a state or of the people, either collectively or individually, may be drawn in question. Man, I love that. That's, uh, that's some very solid information. All right, I'm going to shift gears. This one's kind of a touchy subject that I'm about to, to touch on here, but um, this one hits kind of close to home. If you don't know someone who is dealing with transgender issues or some uh, kid who is, is dealing with gender identity issues, just give it some time. It's, it's, like a, it's like a mind virus right now that's making its way through society. And, and it's really, it's, it's a difficult thing. It, it, it's rooted in classic Marxist, you know, oppressor versus the oppressed kind of mentality. And, and you'll, you'll see people um, going to extreme lengths to try to claim that, uh, that vaunted victimhood status. Well, I'm sorry that we can't be a part of the family, but, you know, the problem is where you're not on board with this, uh, this transgender phase that this particular young person is going through. Therefore, you see this person as an abomination before God. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's a pretty big pronouncement. I guess it takes it takes away the possibility that a person may may not agree that uh, oh yes this is normal this is healthy and yes we should all play along with you know whatever the the mental disconnect is that that young person is going through but you can still very much love the person you can still show them kindness you can show them respect without allowing yourself to be forcibly drafted into their fantasy and I you know, I've wondered, and I, I think I, I've seen a couple of good answers as to why is it, especially the the moms, or at least the 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 mothers who who push their children into this this gender identity questioning and this gender dysphoria sort of mindset. They cling to it with every fiber of their being, and I think one of the better explanations I've heard is because they understand. You know, when you're encouraging a, a kid. To or a young person to cut off healthy body parts to become surgically mutilated or to take hormone blockers, you're encouraging them to permanently alter their body with consequences such as you know, well, you cut off your breasts, you'll never breastfeed your child if you ever decide to have one, or for that matter, maybe those hormone blockers will prevent you from ever being able to have a child. And if they were ever to admit, whoops, I may have got that wrong. It's just too much. And so they're going to ride that lie into the ground because they really have no other choice. They're all in. That's really sad. And I just want to assure those, those who wonder, well, but if I change my mind, won't everybody condemn me? Look, if you do something wrong, is it not the adult thing to own up to a mistake and do everything you can to fix it? Or are we supposed to just double down and, oh, I never do anything wrong, or I did nothing wrong here? I really think there's this pathological need to, to stick to that lie, even though it's, it's, you know, causing permanent, lifelong damage to an innocent individual. Look, I say this in the same sense that if, uh, if one of my kids had anorexia, and every time she looked in the mirror, she was like, oh, I'm so fat. 
Would the loving thing be to play along with her and say, you're right, honey. You should probably skip a meal. Here, have more laxatives. You probably need to lose some weight. Would you play along with the fantasy knowing that it's really, it's a disconnect in her perception of reality? Or would the loving thing be, be to, let's get you the help that you need? I know. But if you don't affirm you know, this fantasy that I'm in, why then you're denying my existence. That's genocide. Or at least I believe that's how the narrative goes. Well, if it's the kind of fantasy that everybody has to believe in, everybody has to participate in, or it can't be real, maybe you should rethink the whole premise on which it's founded. Just saying. So there's an article here I'm sharing from Millie Sands. This was written um, for for, uh, AmericanThinker.com, The Deceptive Advertising of Gender-Affirming Surgery. And this is some pretty interesting stuff. It's, it's It's very creepy how you hear talk about gender-affirming surgery, but it doesn't tell you what typically, you know, surgeries are, are supposed to do. Uh, for instance, uh, Millie Sands says, you know, the, the, the problem here is that they talk about this, but they, re- they rarely talk about what the problem is or what exactly is going on with these surgeries. So it's worth working your way through the products being sold to the reality behind the sales pitches. And she goes through what they mean by so-called gender affirmation surgery, which they say is is their goal to give transgender individuals the physical appearance and functional abilities of the gender they know themselves to be. So these surgeries that a multi-specialty team typically includes, you know, board-certified plastic surgeons perform are intended to make men look more like women, women look more like men, and both to look more like neither. So to this end, they resculpt facial bones, they give men boob jobs, they castrate men and create fake vaginas, they give women mastectomies, they cut skin off women's bodies to create fake penises. All of it, of course, is dressed up in euphemisms. Now, plastic surgery has developed over time to have two aspects. Reconstructive surgery for body parts damaged by injury or disease and cosmetic surgery to augment people's looks according to their preferences. Under those definitions, it's pretty apparent that so-called gender-affirming surgery is cosmetic surgery with an occasional bit of the the internal organs, of the internal, rather, if organs are also taken out, like a hysterectomy or ovirectomy. It's voluntary, elective, and performed on normal parts of the body. Now, she goes into the definition here of what it means to affirm and so forth, but here's, here's the crazy thing. When you hear somebody talk about surgeries like a bowel resection, this is what it means. When you survive the surgery of bowel resection, your bowel will have been resected. When you have a, uh, let me see if I can say this correctly, cholecystectomy, that means your gallbladder is taken out. If you have a lung resection, you wake up with one less lung or with less lung since some of it's been removed and so on. In virtually no other surgical intervention is the language touchy-feely, warm, and fuzzy, because it's not medical nomenclature. So when you hear about gender-affirming surgery, what you're hearing is false advertising. Better descriptive names that should be applied that would more honestly describe these these uh, procedures. They don't need to be, you know, they don't need to be vulgar, but they need to be more honest. Because the idea is not to suggest an outcome that can't be promised and, and to let the patient know what's really going on. Again, if you have to defy reality, 
you might want to start questioning some of those premises. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment today, we'll get to our article of the day in just a few moments. This is a great article, by the way, about uh, establishing tradition in your family. Before we get there, though, I want to give you a couple excerpts of uh, James Howard Kunstler's latest. Look, I don't I don't like to wade into politics. I, I, I think too much of our media coverage is all about, oh, it's all what's going on in Washington, D.C. and the political class. And every story is reported like this is the most important thing happening in the world today, which to the political class, it probably is. To the rest of us who live in the real world, eh, not so much. It has as much importance as we're willing to give it. But when I want to know what's going on, when I want a really no-crap assessment of, of what's taking place, James Howard Kunstler does a really good job. He says, the hour's late for Joe Biden. I like how he puts that in quotes. His sojourn in, Mer- in America's highest office was one long twilight of pretending to be effectual or merely present, and now even that abject pantomime slips into a place of nullity where all is still and dark. What does he do those languorous weekends at the fabled Delaware Beach House? Stare out at the empty Atlantic horizon over an uneaten egg salad sandwich with the crusts cut off? Does he even suspect that the world is already turning without him? The pressure's mounting for a group of somebodies to arrange his exit from the scene. Now, of course, there is no public discussion of that among the somebodies because everything they've been doing for years happens sub rosa, in addition to being of dubious legality. Despite the most formidable Praetorian protections, a depraved Justice Department, a Gestapo-caliber FBI, a debauched news media, the arrows of culpability are flying clean through the beach house windows at that immobilized figure sitting in the crepuscular gloom. He says, forgive me for bringing this up, but remember the first impeachment of Mr. Trump on the matters of a phone call to a freshly minted President Z in Ukraine pertaining to some fishy matters around the Burisma gas company? Yes, Mr. T was impeached over a mere inquiry into possible misconduct by a former high U.S. official being one Joe Biden, ex-Veep, and his bagman son. The setup was patently obvious even to us bloggers who enjoy no intimate correspondence with the organelles of the D.C. blob. A CIA spook whistleblower named Eric Sierra Mella was injected into the scene with help from the devious Colonel Vindman at NSA and an assist from Intel Community Inspector General Michael uh, Atkinson. And voila! Recall the solemn pageantry of Nancy Pelosi's march across the Capitol Rotunda with the hallowed bill of impeachment on a satin pillow. And now more than three years later, the nation is informed of all the particulars around those Burisma companies' doings with the Biden family in granular detail. Five million plus five million, laying out just one instance of treasonous money grubbing by this family among many grifts in other nations. And in case of any lingering questions, if the news media were not a pseudopod of the blob, a long roster of bank transfer records has been assembled by Representative Comer of the House Oversight Committee to validate the deal, memos, emails, and audio recordings already available for inspection in the alt-news. Very interesting. So now the blob is desperate to jettison this embodiment of its corruption and lawlessness, Joe Biden, before the Trump-deranged masses start paying attention to the distant yelling from the asteroid belt of actual news beyond noisy planet MSNBC. Kunstler says the blob will be fighting for its very life anyway. 
The Ukraine operation is not proceeding according to plan. Do you know why? Answer, because it was a stupid plan concocted by purlined neocon idiots. Russia has been insulted to the degree that it deems America unworthy of negotiation, meaning Russia will bring the Ukraine mess to a conclusion on its terms. Now, they will take care to do it gingerly so as not to to further inflame the psychosis afflicting America and tempt us into even grosser stupidities. Namely, they will insist on a neutral Ukraine with no foreign operators in it and some rearrangement of Ukraine's borders. America will have to lump it. The blob neocon faction will blame the whole amenable affair on Joe Biden, who by then will be gone from the White House. How does that happen? The 25th Amendment. Since we're now at the point where his infirmity is as hard to ignore as the evidence of his crimes. How the blob deals with his successor, with his successor rather, the distressing Ms. Harris, well, that's another bridge to cross. The switcheroo itself may be enough to tank the financial markets, which will give the restive nation something else to think about, being the personal ruin of every household in the land. Then, he says, things really get interesting. I've got a link to his article in today's show notes. Okay, that's, I know, that's kind of a sucker punch, but I think he, I think he tells it straight. Let's, uh, let us end on a positive note. Our article of the day, again, this comes from intellectualtakeout.org. One of the greatest gifts we can give our children and grandchildren is the gift of family traditions. Cadence McManaman, did I say that right? McManaman, okay, got it. Traditionalism, she says, is, will come to nothing if it is not shared with future generations. You might have children yourself, or you're in the throes of parenting, or you might be looking forward to a family one day and wondering how best to prepare. How does one go about teaching tradition to children? Where should new and future parents focus in order to give their young ones the same mindset they hold dear? Well, most of the answer can be summarized in one simple statement. As parents, we must live by example. We must ourselves live the way we want our children to live. We are the cornerstone of their, of their childhoods. We have the most influence out of anyone in their young lives. We can use this influence well, or we can neglect it. Either way, our children are directly affected. So if we wish to develop our lives to match our values and the traditions we want to uphold, our children will naturally follow. Now, of course, she says outside of our parental examples, there are thousands of parental decisions to be made about child rearing. The good news is that parents can pick the most important battles to fight. And there are three big ones that we must win. First, we must give our children siblings. Tradition is rooted in community and community begins with family, so we shouldn't be afraid to add another member or two or three or five to the family as time goes on. Our children will not only gain childhood playmates, but also a dependable community right in their own home. Even if we are unable to have more children ourselves, we can offer our children similar benefits by connecting with other like-minded families. Second, we must choose education intentionally. The public school system is not known for promoting tradition, to put it lightly. We should consider the huge amount of time a student spends in school and reflect on whether this giant percentage of childhood is offering our kids the life and morals we want them to have. Cadence McManaman says, I strongly encourage any traditional parents, traditionalist parents rather, to pursue alternative education for their children. Homeschooling is a popular and highly effective option. There are also many parochial schools, online schools, charter schools, and educational co-ops parents can explore. Kids spend about 1,080 hours in full-time school per year. We should make those hours fit our values. 
Third, she says we need to engage our children in skills, not screens. Technology has brought many benefits to our world as as well as many negative effects. Historically, humanity has survived and even thrived without any of the screens we use daily. Sometimes traditional living is about what we don't use rather than what we do. Daily movies, television, social media, and video games will teach children to be dependent on them for entertainment. Now, she says, in my experience, the best way to combat this is to replace 90% of screen time with something else, anything else. We can fill this blank space in daily life with traditions and practices we want our children to live out. And some of the ones she suggests are things like going outside. I know, right? What a concept. Reading, making music, walking, gardening, raising animals, praying, handicrafts, cooking, fitness, chores. She says, to prove the benefits of raising children in tradition, I have a real-life example for you. And she says, that's her own upbringing. Cadence McManaman says, my parents chose to live a traditional marriage, and I have a host of siblings. My mother homeschooled her children while my father worked. Our screen time was limited, and free time was spent mostly outdoors or pursuing creative hobbies. This lifestyle made space for us to truly practice traditionalism. Fast forward 20 years, and she says, my siblings and I have reaped the benefits. We are now adults with college educations, good careers, and stable marriages. We are all faithful in our religion and remain extremely close friends with each other. Among our childhood habits, or rather she says, and our childhood habits have completely directed our life choices even outside of these things. She and her siblings can all do basic carpentry. They know how to raise livestock, Irish dance, sew their own clothes, grow their own food, and so on. Now, these accomplishments she talks about are not the result of inborn talent, endless riches, or just sheer luck. Her point is they are the result of how our parents raised us. As a sibling group, we are not exceptional by nature. We are exceptional because we were taught how to be so. Many of our spouses, friends, and acquaintances have experienced the same thing in childhood and have built equally wonderful traditionalist lives today. And she says all of us can do the same thing for our children. After all, the fate of society lies with them. Does this sound too, too simple to be true? I can assure you it's not. So there's something positive. You have power <clears throat> to influence the world, not just now, but for generations to come. And it really comes down to a matter of priorities. I know this sounds cliche, but family really is everything. We shouldn't lose sight of that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.